The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Jessie Ware, and I present a podcast called Table Manners with my mum. Say hi, mum. Hi. We're very proud that Smart EQ for 2 and 4-4 four four are sponsoring Table Manners at the moment. Are they all electric, Jess? Yeah, all of them now. With the new Smart EQ for 2, Cabrio and 4-seater Smart 4-4, four four, it means that the original city car is now fully electric across the range. Wow, I can't wait to see them. Apparently, they're really fun, spacious and practical to drive. And the new smart car comes with all the benefits of electric driving, like its powerful acceleration. I didn't know that electric cars were so powerful for acceleration. Neither did I. Mm. And, and that you can charge it at home. Well, yeah, absolutely. And also, of course, the most important thing, emission-free driving. Perfect for the city. Search Smart EQ 42 and 44 to find out more. When it comes to British national treasures, Patrick Vernon is high up on the list. An activist, historian, and curator whose work spans decades, he's one of the black Britons who has been instrumental in shaping the identity of black Britishness. Among his work around black mental health and social inequalities, he's done seminal work documenting the Windrush generation. He's one of the leaders of a campaign to have black people represented on British banknotes, and his podcast, Museum of Grooves, explores Afrofuturism and is set in a fictional future aboard the SS. Sankofa. We discuss the impact of Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech, his formative beginnings as an activist, why Afrofuturism is a tool to better agitate for our future today, and the many manifestations of our activism. He reminds us that activism is not just protesting and lobbying, it's also the visionary and creative reimagining of our lives. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Patrick Vernon. Thank you so much for being here. It means a lot. I mean, you are an icon, a role model. Um, and so, yeah, it's it, well, thank you. everywhere, that's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I'd like to start off, I, I find it very interesting that you were born in Wolverhampton yeah. um, and were seven years old, I think, when Enoch Powell gave his famous, infamous rather, Rivers of Blood speech. Yeah. I was actually, I was, I was about six at the time. He made a speech uh, in April 1968. Um, and then about six months later, he attended the opening of my junior school when I was about seven years old. Um, and there's lots of pictures on the internet about that. And, um, and then actually this year, because of the 50th anniversary of his speech, um, IT, um, Central News... Uh, invited me and some former pupils and teachers 
back to the junior school where he where he attended to open, um, and there's like a reunion. So it was a bit, it was a real kind of surreal experience. I mean, obviously at the time as a as a as a child, you didn't know who he was and the implications and ramifications of what he said. Um, and my parents never never really talked about it. It's only been later on in, in, um, as a teenager you start to realise the significance. Uh, of that speech, and and particularly my campaign around activism, around fighting, fighting race equality, justice, and the recent winter scandal, then you realise the full implications of his speech, and how his speech has shaped politicians across all political parties for the last 50 years, uh, in terms of immigration policy, policy around the otherness, um, and leading to a hostile immigration environment. Mm. And so what were the implications, if, if you had to kind of outline those implications? I mean, obviously, you're, you're a, a young person when the speech happens, but you don't realize the, yes. the severity, of yes. that, if that's the right word, for that, yeah. of that speech. So yeah. what were those impl- impl- implications? Well, I mean, How did that manifest? There were obvious implications because, obviously, he believed in immigration control. He believed in that dependence coming from the colonies, or the, or the com- now we call the Commonwealth, should be sent back. So he believed in repatriation, mm. um, which was a cornerstone of the National Front, the BNP, and now Tommy Robinson. Um, but actually, another part of his speech, which people don't really talk about that much, uh, is he, he equated having uh, dependents, i.e. children, of the of people come from the Caribbean, Africa, India, and the parts of the kind of British Empire, that if these children came to Britain, they would almost like bring down the educational standards of <laughs> white pupils. And this had implications because this led, there was segregation in schools when I was growing up. Um, there were lots of cases in Bradford, um, in um, London, and particularly Wolverhampton, whereby educational authorities in schools deliberately made sure there weren't too many black kids in the same class to give them, not to scare white parents, and you know, but the school I went to, which was, which again, uh, Enoch Powell was there when it was opened. Um, there were eighty percent of us black and non-ethnic uh, in that school because there was a baby boom. I'm a baby boomer. I was born in the sixties, right, right. so th- there was massive explosion of children growth, and there was enough schools in Britain. There were enough junior schools. There were enough comprehensive schools. So even though they'd had this policy of segregation, trying to make, and I was, and I didn't realise until um, uh, Dr. Shun Hurst, she's written a book on Enoch Powell and his speech, which came published by Manchester University Press. But when she was doing her research work, and she contacted me uh, about my experiences of growing up in Wolverhampton as a child, and she showed me some documentation, and, and I didn't realise that I was, I was past that, I was bust around. Me and my sister, we went to different schools for, for about nearly a year. Till we eventually went to, uh, till we became more settled in the junior schools we went to, because there was a busing policy of making sure there weren't too many black and Asian kids in schools. And so that was part of the context of Enoch Powell's speech, which ultimately what it meant was that actually, particularly black children, were, were dumbed down, put in educational subnormal, classic educational subnormal, which meant that they didn't realise their full potential, which also meant that. Um, we weren't given the same level of respect and treatment as children. Mm. You know, the whole concept of every child matters. It didn't really matter for us. And I was lucky because I was able to, you know, have some 
um, decent grades and then eventually do A-levels and go to university. But all my peers I went to school with, they didn't have the same opportunities to realise their full potential because of racist immigration policy, rhetoric and language that was used, which held us back in many ways. I I feel like this year has been such a rude awakening Mm. uh, for so many of us who perhaps didn't really understand the extent of racism Mm. in Britain for whatever reason. Yes. You know, the work that you do certainly brings to light. And obviously David Olusoga. All of this work kind of reveals a Britain that I think many of us uh, of a different generation are perhaps not as familiar with. Yeah, it's really funny because I think when Barack Obama became president of... uh, of the United States uh, in 2009, and there's a whole debate for about. There was a whole debate, but you know, has America and therefore has Britain reached its post-racial? <laughs> lots of books have come out on this because you have this man, most who's, who was then the most powerful black man or man on the planet, um, you know, etc. And all what that means. So there's a whole debate. You know, yeah, we have reached post-racial uh, America and therefore post-racial Britain, but actually, what we have now with with Donald Trump, the rise of the far right, increased hate crime, homophobic crime, it's just been hidden. Mm. It's just come out of the woodwork. So mm. all the things, all the things which people um, thought we were we had dealt with, yeah, so or it's integrated. Bit, it's a bit like yeah. dealing with cholera or TB. We've eradicated TB. We've eradicated cholera, but we haven't. It's still right. there, <laughs> uh, and it's still there. The racism and fascism mm. is still there, um, and I think. What's interesting um, is the race relations industry, and so that's the only way I could describe it, has been an industry whereby it's given the impression that we thought we'd solved it, but we haven't. And that's why I think activism is important, because even though I've, some aspects of the race relations industry I've been involved in, I've always been on the uh, outside as an activist, mm. because when you're an activist, you have to see, you have to have a 360 degree perspective. No matter what, you, where you activate activists on one issue or single issues or a range of issues, you have to have the overall objective. What's really happening? You almost, you have to almost like second guess what could be happening, and then thirdly, and what, you need to then be proactive mm. in your activism. You can't just simply do a tweet or have a, be down the pub and say this is terrible. Mm. You say, right, well, I'm going to put this into action. Whether action leads to the change, that's a different story, but that's the key ingredients around that. And I think what's quite clear is with the rise of, you know, Black Lives Matter, which happened during the last couple of years of Barack Obama's presidency, and they and they were saying, actually, black lives, don't, we might have a black president, but our lives don't matter still. Mm. Um, and obviously, we've had a whole long history in Britain of fighting for struggles from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Each decade, there is an individual, a core celeb, that we get, get involved in. So in the 40s and 50s, it was fighting the colour bar, yeah? In the 60s, it was about black power and sort of pan-Africanism. 70s and 80s, it was fighting against structural racism, sus laws, stop and search, inequalities in and in housing, etc. And then by the 90s, even though we had the Stephen Lawrence um, murder and inquiry, I think by the 90s, people thought, actually, you know, we're doing all right, things are comfortable, we don't need to activate too much, you know. And by the time we reached the 2000s post-millennium and this last 10 years of austerity, then people realised, actually, you know what, perhaps in the 90s we took our our eye off the ball. 
Mm. Maybe. Took a break. I took a break. Mm. Post-racial is, is just a myth. Yeah. Uh, in my, my radio show, Museum of Grooves, I do talk about post-racial, but it's in different contexts. I don't talk about, it's about 400 years later. Yeah, um, yeah, we no, may we'll get to that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what was that formative, you know, we speak about activism. What was that formative moment for you when you decided that you were going to activate around um, oh. issues affecting the black community? Well, I've always been involved in activism on a very low scale as you you always start from baby steps don't you yes you give out a leaflet you go to a rally you go on a march you know so you I've always done those stuff from the time I was a student from the age of 18 upwards but I think the real changing point for me is when I uh, there was a campaign I was involved in in Wolverhampton before I moved down to London of a young black guy called Clinton McCurbin um, he was murdered and I use the word murdered uh, by three police officers in next close shop in February 1987. So back in those day, back in the 80s, late 90s, you go into a, you go into a department store and you have a credit card. Normally they ring somewhere to double check you got you can spend your limits or whatever it is. It's all different now, obviously. But they would in then you if you had a credit card, you were buying an uh, item of clothing or whatever. They would just ring to double check to verify who you are. So a guy. Happened to be a black guy, walked into this department store close shop, next shop in Wolverhampton, tries to buy something. They go in the stock room to call to double check. Obviously, he realizes because it's a stolen card, he just walks out. They call the police instead. A guy walks in, called Clinton McCurbin, minding his own business, um, looking around, and then a couple of minutes later, police arrive. They automatically assume that he's a guy with a stolen credit card. And they automatically jump on him and start arresting him. So obviously, what you do, you in that situation, it's like you're trying to fight back. You've been, you know, protesting his innocence. What are you doing? What's happening? So one police officer sat on his legs. One police officer sat on his stomach. One did an arm lock round his neck, held, and they held him down for a good minute or two. And according to some eyewitnesses, he said, "I can't breathe." Now, roll that forward, mm. you know. About 26 years later, that's what Eric Garner said, yes. I can't breathe. But Clinton McCurbin said that in 1987, I can't breathe. He died. Um, the police panicked. They dragged his body into the stockroom, called an ambulance. And then before you know it, uh, there were lots of people assembling outside the shopping centre, outside the shop, next clothes shop, wondering what was happening. Rumours had there was a black guy being injured. There was, there was a police van. There was, a, there was an ambulance blocking the entrance of the shop. The shop was closed. And then next minute, right police came and they deliberately uh, attacked and arrested mainly black people that targeted in the town centre. And then the next, the next day in the newspaper was black guys died in next clothes shop, criminal, black people rioting in the streets, all criminals. That's the way it was done by wow, local media. Wow. So I got involved in that campaign um, in a sense because I'd studied law at university and I was involved working with the family's legal team which is Paul Botan, who was, was then appointed before he became MP. Um, I, you know, I was involved in that campaign for about a year, 18 months. Um, we, we organised marches, we had vigils, we did the economic boycott of Next Clothes Shop, which then eventually closed down. We did the economic boycott of McDonald's, and the reason why we did McDonald's because the right police um, were given free McDonald's by the guy who ran the franchise. So we basically... Said, you know, black people like their McDees, as you know. <laughs> and for a whole year, black people didn't walk into McDonald's for a whole year. Didn't wow. quite close down, but 
the very fact that we actually had this economic boycott and it was almost working was brilliant. So I was involved. So that was my real, real experience of activism uh, before I moved down to London. What happened in the end? There was a police investigation, as always. Police officers were cleared. They had an inquest. Um, they cleared the police officers. Um, and what ha- and what happened politically? The council. Wolverhampton Council wants to support the family. They were, were going to make a contribution towards legal costs to help the family. That led to a backlash led by the local newspaper, Express Star. Um, and basically, it was, it was a Labour Council at the time, it, and it became a toxic news story whereby the local newspaper was saying, do you want your, do you want your, your taxpayers' money to pay for the cost of someone who's been killed, by the, who's been, who died... Because as a result of being with a stolen credit card, because we were trying to make the point that he he didn't steal a card, it wasn't his card, but the media thought that he was a criminal, and therefore he should deserve he deserved to die basically. So and that led to a council election, which the Labour Labour lost, and the Conservatives won because hmm. a lot of people then so it was, became a race issue. So it's quite a big story. It's, I mean, it's not, not not many people are aware of it. Uh, but had made major implications uh, as well, and the police officers they were never charged or convicted. Uh, and then later, years later, the Westminster Police Force have been heavily criticised for how they mm. again dealt with black people and stop and search and criminal convictions and the like. I'm, I'm thinking about this phrase "hostile environment," which has been so uh, so closely linked to the Windrush scandal. Yes. But actually, this hostile environment has existed mm-hmm. for a time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's always been there. It was quite clear there was a hostile environment. No dogs, no blacks, no Irish. Segregation. Uh, black people were paid less than white people in terms of the same doing the same job. You know, poor access to accommodation, not allowed to buy properties. You know, loads of cases of people buying properties, for getting white people to buy properties on their behalf. You know, that was a hostile environment. And I can remember as a teenager, National Front used to have regular marches in Wolverhampton, and that was a hostile environment because you were fearful of your life. Especially London, I mean, if you live outside London, if people, you understand that being black and living outside the, in the middle of the north, you could be mindful because you could be anywhere, you could be attacked at any time. And w- did you say that's today or that was then? I'm talking about then, like right, then, okay. then, especially then. Obviously, you have incidents yeah. now, but it's not the same as well because you had to, you, you know, because there was a situation you had to fight back. And when you fought back, they got the message and they would leave you alone. You know, so you wouldn't, you know, so National Front wouldn't dare take on black people. They knew full well they'll get a good beating or hiding. So talk to me about your involvement um, in Windrush and in helping raise awareness around a scandal that has um, ultimately engulfed the, the current government. So I've been involved around the whole aspect of promoting the history, the heritage of the Windrush generation. How I see Windrush is probably different from how other people might see Windrush. I see Windrush as uh, African and Caribbean people from who've come to Britain and even though there's been a black presence in Britain for about 2,000 years, uh, and that's important to acknowledge that, because obviously if you go to Bristol, Liverpool, uh, other parts of the country, there has been a black presence for centuries. But if, but particularly in terms of after the Second World War and post-war migration, um, there's, that's when there's been a significant rise of black people coming to Britain as migrants, invited by invited on the 1948 
but this nationality act because after the second war there was labor shortages that's why and then and you know mother called and the children came mm. actually ironically the 1948 act wasn't really targeted towards black people uh, or brown people it was targeted towards white people from australia new zealand canada that it was aimed at them oh. to come and rebuild the country after the war but they ah, weren't that's interesting but they were interested but we heard that but we <laughs> thought it was of us they weren't interested yeah they were interested it's the they story of white people <laughs> yeah, that, yeah but, <laughs> but we thought it was we were invited and that is but we were invited but we weren't the original invitees if you put right, that way right so we came and obviously we were recognised British and that kind of stuff. So I've always been interested in that historiography based on my family's experiences and growing up in the Midlands and then moving to London and being involved in lots of programmes and initiatives around heritage. Uh, and I've made some films, I've done some oral history projects, I've written articles and stuff like that. So I've always had this interest in around the historiography of that generation before the whole stuff around the scandal. I must admit I wasn't where of the scandal until I got approached by someone that was affected by the scandal. His name was uh, Iwaldo Romeo. He was featured um, by Emilia Gentleman um, in The Guardian. But at the time, um, so I was involved in the historiography of that generation. I was promoting the idea for the last 10 years of a Windrush Day to celebrate, not just the Windrush generation, but to celebrate migrants' contributions to Britain. So again, because of my childhood and growing up in Wolverhampton and the whole stuff around Enoch Powell and how immigration and migration has seen as a dirty, negative word that we've we just come here just to take jobs, women and, and men and anybody else and we weren't recognised for our contribution mm. and so I was interested, you know, why is it that we're not being valued and our contribution is not being recognised, why is it that the national curriculum TV programmes, media the only time you see us is when we're doing something of criminality yeah. or, or just we're poor victims and that's it but not looking at that real contribution that we've made. So that was my focus, to be quite honest, over the last 10 years. Um, and I've been working with a number of individuals and organisations promoting the idea of a Windrush Day, which now the government has accepted as a result of the scandal. Yeah, it's which June 22nd, right? 22nd of June. And we chose Windrush Day uh, and the 22nd of June because that's when the Empire Windrush docked and arrived and people came off the ship uh, 1948, but it wasn't so much about the ship itself, it was more about um, symbolism, what the ship represents, because on that ship there were over 500 people, majority were from the Caribbean, but there were Polish people on that ship, uh, and there were people from Malta on that ship, and so in many ways, um, when the Department of Culture and Media Studies, they did a big campaign some years ago to find the most iconic images or objects of post-war Britain, people people voted for the mini, you know, the the Mini Cooper, the letterbox, Ringmaster bus, you know, all the kind of <laughs> iconic British things, Britishness type stuff. And also people recognised the Windrush ship, mm. that the bow of that ship, you know, um, because that's the nearest thing that we've got in Britain, sadly, to talk about migration. So if you can think of any migrant post-Second World War come from any part of the world, we don't have a clear, distinctive symbolism of that history of migration. The Windrush ship is the nearest thing that we've got. We haven't got a Statue of Liberty, we haven't got an Ellis Island, we haven't got anything in the UK context which right. symbolises migration. So that's why I thought it was important to use the concept of the bow of the ship to celebrate not just the African or Caribbean migration, but all migrants who've made a contribution to Britain over the last 70 years. 
then I got involved in the scandal because um, what was quite clear, even though there were lots of articles written by uh, The Guardian and other people, um, cases of people losing their benefit, cases of people not accessing the state pensions, people not access, not allowed to get NHS treatment, people, uh, you know, local authorities, ha- landlords becoming mini border control people because people had to prove they were British, basically. And that had impact on the women's generation because the children of the women's generation who came to Britain between the late 40s up to the 70s, um, they came with their parents' passport. They didn't need to have any separate paperwork or identity. Right. And therefore, a lot of them, actually quite a few of them, never travelled. And you know, and why should you? Because about 30% of people in Britain don't have passports. So why should you... So if a white person don't need to have a passport to prove they're British, why should we have a passport to prove that we're British? I, I didn't realise that, that, that yeah. 30% of, of British people don't have a passport. Yeah, yeah. They don't have passports. In America, it's even higher. It's about yeah. nearly 40% yeah, yeah. of <laughs> Americans don't have passports. You know, they don't really travel that much anyway, as you know, mm. um, because you just, America's a massive country. Uh, so, but the whole idea of the hostile environment was you have to have some documentary evidence to prove that you're British. But that was obviously targeting <laughs> Which black doesn't and apply yeah. to white people because, yeah, yeah, white people, of course, they're British. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, but, you're, but, well, can you prove that you're British? You know, so so that, was, and that was a rationale which reinforced the, the racist immigration policies we've had from the 60s onwards. What Enoch Powell, the National Front, the BNP, UKIP, and Tom Robinson were saying is, you know, we want to make contr- we want to control black and brown people's bodies in this country. And the only way you can do that is through immigration policy. And and also, secondly, if you're illegal or we don't want you, we can deport you. So the hostile um, immigration environment is repatriation from the back door. Because over the last 10 years, over 30,000 people have been deported for a variety of reasons. So over With the, the host- past 10 years... In, ter- oh, yeah, in terms of all governments, they've been deporting people. But obviously with the hostile immigration environment since 2014, that has intensified even further. Because if you don't have any evidence, you're therefore that you're British. If you can't prove that you're British, and they had this onerous test, four pieces of documentary evidence for every year that you've been here. So just imagine you came to Britain. <laughs> just imagine you came to Britain as a five-year-old. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and then you get a letter from the Home Office in your 60s and say, can you now prove that you're British? Despite the fact that the state has more information on us apart from Facebook. Um, <laughs> you know, literally, they have everything, you know, where you've worked, where you're schooled. So, but, let's, but they put the burden of proof on you to prove that you're British. That's the whole idea of the hostile environment because if you can't prove that you're British or you've been here long enough, therefore you're deemed to be a legal immigrant, which means that you're going to go into a detention centre, which means you're going to get deported. As Theresa May said when she was Home Secretary, um, we deport first and they can appeal later. That was, no. a, that was a whole rationale. I, I read uh, Liz Fichetti's Fault Lines. Liz Fichetti is one of the directors at the um, Institute of Race Relations. Yes. And she wrote this brilliant book yeah. called Fault Lines, okay. which tracks um, the rise of the right over the past 30 years yes. across Europe. And I think that, that, that we can think about what's happening in the UK as singular. Mm. And, and it's very easy for us to detach it from what's happening yes. across Europe. Mm. Um, and it really kind of opened my eyes to the interconnectedness of the way that black and brown bodies are treated, not just in England, not just in yeah. America, but actually all over the world. Yes. And so this, this, this repatriation 
actually begins, I think, as a black person to feel more attractive. Yes. <laughs> it feels like it for me. Yeah. Because as you're talking about the process yeah. for proving our Britishness, yes. part of me feels so deflated yes. by that, that, yeah. that our people are treated this way. It is actually. So I think one of the implications of this, of the Winrush scandal, is a bigger issue, um, which has not really been dealt with by the government or the media or even conversations in the community. But it's something I've been thinking a lot about, actually. So what I simply did was to do a petition with a, with a big social media campaign just to say that the Windrush generation, the children, are British. They don't need to have this stupid burden of proof of proving they're British because according to the, the 1948 British Nationality Act, uh, they came as British. So why should they change the gay park rules? Secondly, that the government should give compensation mm. for the economic and the emotional loss that people have suffered, uh, and they'll stop all de- deportation flights. So that was the, my campaign I did in April, and it went absolutely ballistic. Nearly 200,000 people signed a petition in 10 days. That led to debates in Parliament, that led to David Lambert doing this fantastic speech in Parliament. When my parents and their generation arrived in this country under the Nationality Act of 1948, they arrived here as British <laughs> citizens. <laughs> It is inhumane and cruel for so many of that Windrush generation to have suffered so long in this condition and for the Secretary of State only to have made a statement today on this issue. Can she explain how many have been deported? She suggested earlier that she would ask the High Commissioners. It is her department that has deported them. She should know the number. Can she tell the House how many have been detained as prisoners in their own country? Can she tell the House how many have been denied health under the National Health Service? How many have denied pensions? How many have lost their job? This is a day of national shame and it has come about because of a hostile environment policy that was begun under her Prime Minister. Let us call it as it is. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. And that is what has happened with this far-right rhetoric in this country. Can she apologise properly? Can she explain how quickly this team will act to ensure that the thousands of British men and women denied their rights in this country under her watch in the Home Office are satisfied? That led to the government apologising very seriously. As you know, governments don't apologise as a general rule. They apologise. Amber Rudd lost her job. Um, And that led to the government creating the task force to try and fast-track people's applications for status. They're now looking at compensation. Uh, but there's been human tragedies in there. Two people have died in Britain. Uh, 11, 13 people have died in total, a number of them in the Caribbean, because some of them got illegally got deported by the government, and some of them were languishing in poverty and died. Two people died in Britain, Sarah O'Connor and Dexter Bristol died. Uh, as a result of the stress. So the key things I want to emphasise, um, I've worked in mental health and social policy for a number of years, and as we, as we know, there is a massive issue around of representation of black people in, in the mental health system, of representation of the criminal justice system and all that kind of stuff. And what's quite clear with the hostile environment, whether it was intended or not, but one of the unintended consequences of the hostile environment, it raised that, that vexed issue, do we belong here? Are we valued here? Are we recognised here? What is black? What is black Britishness? Does it really exist now, or do we have to kind of go through a campaign of fighting for our rights to re 
to reaffirm who we are in Britain? Or does the hostile environment and the complete structural racism which the government have now have agreed, have apologised to, cannot create an opportunity of a renaissance to reclaim that? Almost like what happened in Harlem, mm. around Harlem Renaissance, where at the height of Jim Crow, you know, writers, academics, Indeed, yeah. you know, straight and gay black people said, right, we're going to claim this space and articulate our, our own identity through art. I mean, I'm not saying, that, could that lead to that? I'm, I'm not quite sure if it would, you know, mm. same thing happened in Paris around the negative Renaissance. Is this an opportunity to reclaim who we are? It's, it's a, it's a yeah, question. It's a beautiful question as well. It's a big one. Yeah. And I don't know if there has been a kind of black British renaissance that matches kind of the Harlem Renaissance. There was in the 80s, actually. There was. Oh, Oh, of course If you think about the 80s, if you can think... Oh, and Isaac Julian. Isaac, yeah, yeah. You had had, um, filmmakers, Mm. you had artists... Photographers, oh, Jamu and Topher Campbell. Uh, I don't oh, yeah, yeah, and the music. Yeah, <laughs> you know, obviously, the, yeah, the likes of you know um, Jazzy B. So in the eighties, I would say between that period of eighty one, maybe up to the nineties, you had this energy of black creativity. I mean, okay, we have it. We still have it. It's still yes, there. Yes. But there was a real critical mass of this black creativity through music, literature, art, film. You name it. In many ways, that's created the foundation of Black British identity. Mm. I mean, cause, and that is different from the, um, our, our parents or grandparents' generation that came in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. They were just surviving. Mm. They were thinking about, when I make enough money, I'm going to go back home. Um, that generation which who were born here, majority were born here or came here as children, started to shape this Black British identity. The, the work that you're doing... Yeah. Raising awareness, campaigning, pressuring the government, and uh, indeed the creative work that you do as well, we'll get to that, but is kind of mirrored or supported by black British creatives who then, because of the work that you're doing, are like, hey, yeah, actually, no, my voice does matter. What I see does matter. My future does matter. And I'm going to create art that, uh, that speaks to that. Yes. That undergirds that. Yeah. And so I imagine in the 80s, it was much the same amongst this institutionalized racism and this yes. death and yeah. threat that yeah. these black artists were coming out yeah. to say this is what blackness looks like for us and yeah. it's actually it's, it's something so, joyful so I'm, I'm hoping that one of the I'm, a, I'm an internal optimist um, you have to be to survive you've got to be you know you're going to wake up each day and say I'm going to do this I'm going to thrive I'm going to make a difference you have to have that self-belief because also we've been beaten down for 400 years to think and to internalize a lot of crap which we, which we all have done, but also you have to kind of um, fight that crap and, and, and do positive things. And act, an activism where you're an activism in terms of uh, art, politics, social media, whatever it is, that is activism. It's not simply um, people see activism in the context of I'm going to campaign, I'm going I'm to be outside number 10, I'm going to lobby. Activism is, is multi-dimensional. Uh, it reflects individuals' politics, identity, how they see the world, and their worldview of the world. And you know, and I think um, I think more people have been more have become more activists compared to ten years ago because we've uh, we've got no choice because of cuts, austerity, mm, and go- mm. ongoing racism. We can't. The question is: Are you part of the solution or part of the problem? And that is a message that's quite clear that we that we have to be part of the solution. And the only way you can be part of the solution is by 
uh, formulating your own ideas, engaging with different st- um, people to share, to bounce ideas, put things into place, challenge notions of the status quo, whatever that status quo is, whether it's in the, in the mainstream or within the black community or around identity, sexuality. It's about changing that status quo. It's, it's changing the, the mindset. That's what's, you know, I think that's really important. That's awesome. I love that extended definition of activism. Yeah. Let's slide on into Museum of Grooves. Okay. Which is such an, uh, an astonishing and fun and serious and complex display. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Now, what inspired Museum of Grooves? It's pure escapism. That's the only way I can describe it. Often, I mean, all of us will have things that we like to do uh, around our own aspects of how we see self-care. For me, I've created this whole virtual world. That's the only way I can describe it. The premise of rate of Museum of Grooves is that I'm a curator uh, of, on a space station called the SS Sankofa. And this space station uh, is about f- in the, it's based in the 24th century. Uh, it's about 360 billion light years away from Earth. And essentially, my job is to look after black music and culture and heritage from the 20th or 21st century. And actually, I've been doing it. I, can't know, I don't know how long I've been doing this job, but I know that um, each, each of my ancestors have been doing the same job as a curator for the last uh, 10 generations because we left Earth probably about 400 years ago because after World War Four, black people had to realise we had to leave that planet and create our own space. Mm. We had some support from some alien intervention. <laughs> uh, yes. So we had the right technology and we left the planet. And so we, we interact with different life forms, different species, and different planetary systems. And my job is to, in the museum, is to look after space in the museum where people can learn about black history and black culture and to remind us that we fought ism, all the isms and now we're in this state where it's, we recognise people for who they are. Everyone's, everyone's gender fluid. We're, everyone recognises that we don't have to worry about how these hang-ups. It's about being who we are. I love it. It's such a... <laughs> it's a vision I can see. Yeah. Um, why place it in the future? What does that allow for? Well, the reason why I did that is actually I'm holding up a mirror from the future looking to where we are now. So all my guests... I, I, so I play jazz, funk, disco, house, you know, all in the reggae. things my guests so I have at least at least one to two guests per show all my guests have replicant numbers I mean I suppose in many ways my show is a cross between Deep Space Nine Blade Runner and uh, <laughs> this Island Disc that's the way I could describe okay. it because all, all my guests have replicant numbers they're all digital files I call them up and I have a conversation with them they talk about their life in the 21st century so I can it, I interrogate them from my perspective, which is the future, and they, you know, and I know what's happened in the future because I've got all the records and the databases on the ship records. So, I, that's, and that's a conversation I have with people, and they talk about their whatever the, their experiences, what they're doing, what the challenges they face, and more importantly, I choose the music selection, which which has defined them or which is important to them as well. I think what Museum of Grooves does so beautifully, you know, by placing you in the future 
or placing everybody in the future and talking about these issues of the past. Yes. Is in a, is in a way it, it makes, when it makes what we're facing seem a little outdated already. Yeah. Right? Like, are we still here? Right? Yes. But it also shows what's possible. Yes. That, that if we can imagine a future for ourselves where we yes. are gender fluid, where we are yeah. above and outside of the world that we currently inhabit. Yeah. Um, absolutely, then, absolutely. Because I think that's the whole essence of Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism is having the permission to think what is the possible. So in the here and now, um, we're fighting everyday racism, we're fighting all that stuff, and sometimes we feel hemmed in. We feel, oh, you know, the glass ceiling's there, the structural racism's there. Where can we breathe? Where can we go? Where, if, you think, if you've got an Afrofuturist lens, you can, you can smash all that, and you can think creatively. You can think of, you can think of so many things you can think of. It just, it's endless, and you know. And that's why I think that's important. I think Afrofuturism um, is a concept that we could do more to help us in our thinking, I think it's a, it's a it's a tool that helps us to, to keep our sanity, mm. and more importantly, we can start thinking of some creative solutions about well, how can we change the narrative of Britain or ourselves as well by using this lens of our futurism. I'm now I'm I'm thinking well, how do I now? I use that lens, and that makes me further more determined in my activism. I've got a couple of quotes here. Scholar Alondra Nelson, who's one of the proponents of Afrofuturism, explained Afrofuturism as a way of looking at the subject position of black people, which covers themes of alienation and aspirations for a utopic future. Uh, Kodwo Eshin, theorist and writer, suggests that the categorization of human actually has no use in the black community, and that instead the category of robot is not only more powerful, but more accurately representative of the positioning in the social hierarchy in which black people exist in the present day. Yeah. And I think a critique of Afrofuturism is precisely because it is yeah. escapist and because it yeah. it places us in a future that doesn't yet exist yes. and which can perhaps ostensibly seem beyond the realm of reality, right? Yeah. And so how do you see Afrofuturism actually helping shape the present day? It helps the present day because, again, we can start thinking creatively about how can we really challenge some of the key issues around structural racism, discrimination that really affects us. Because often when we are involved in trying to do social activism or even our social policy work, we look at it in a current Eurocentric mindset. And we have to accept that's the mindset and you have to think of, you have to tweak around the edges. With Afrofuturism, you don't need to. You can just say, well, sod all that and we're going to start from scratch. I'm going to look at my own lived experiences and what that lived experience should be like in the future. Uh, and then, you know, it's difficult because I think it's still it's, it's, it's ongoing. A lot, I mean, I've come across lots of uh, artists and people who are using their art to describe this imaginary future, what it could be. And I think that's important because you have to be a visionary. A key aspect of, of being an activist is you have spotted a, a problem uh, which everyone might have seen the same problem, but you've got a lens of how you can tackle that problem or through your activism. That is, to me, a critical essence of being an activist. You're looking ahead of the game. You're actually looking at, right, that's the problem. I think that is a solution, and I'm going to get there with support of networks, friends, organisations, media, whoever you get to help you do that stuff. Um, so, for example, I'll give you a current exam- campaign I'm involved in. I'm working with uh, another activist, a uh, young Muslim woman uh, called Sahara, 
and we were running our, our own separate campaigns. So the Bank of England are looking for a new person mm, to be the £50 pound note. Mm. So she's running the campaign to have a Muslim woman uh, who's a, um, two women, Muslim women who are war heroines who served in the Second World War um, to be recognised. I was campaigning for Mary Seacole, um, Crimean war nurse, to be recognised. And the Bank of England then announced that um, there'd be a science category, which means that, you know, if you look at the history of science and technology, and um, it means that even though we've been th- around, we've not been there, we've not been recognised right. uh, deliberately because of racism, colonisation, slavery. You know, we weren't even allowed to read and write half the time. And there were at least create inventions, and even though we did stuff. So we felt that this category was done deliberately to make sure that we're gonna, they're going to celebrate another di- dead white man. So we've come, we've come together and we've launched a joint campaign to say, actually, it's not so much about whoever, which, which personal colour we want to choose on the £50 note. The point is, the Bank of England, for, for the last 400 years, have not printed a banknote with a personal colour on there. Well, and, and why is this important, actually? I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, because I think I saw somewhere on Twitter, someone says, you know... Um, you know, try using a 50 pound note as a black person, right? Yes. There seems to have been a bit of pushback from the black community well, yeah, from what I, I can see. I can, I can see where people come from, but again, see, that's a beauty. You're, you're, not, you're not looking at the big picture. The big picture is it doesn't matter if it's a 50 pound note or a 10 pound note, that's not the point. What we sent to the Bank of England for 400 years, you have not recognized us. Mm. For 400 years, you have been the heart of enslavement of black people, making money and being the banker for the banks who've made all this money, who got, who got compensation through um, in terms of our ancestors uh, it's very subtle, people don't see it that way, they think, oh what's the fuss about you having a black person, brown person the point we're trying to make in a very very subtle but very visionary way is we're challenging Bank of England to change our notion of Britishness, just imagine if we were successful, and we're going to be successful by the way in our campaign and it may not be the £50 note, but it might be another, they might, we might force them to do a £10 note or £5 note. Just imagine you are um, a 12-year-old or a 5-year-old in Sheffield, Manchester, in Hackney, whatever it is, and you see a person of colour on the 50 what's going, what's, What does that tell you? No, what does that tell you in an in, in, in emotional, intellectual? In, in, uh, mm-hmm. It tells you that we've been recognised, basically. So that's the whole idea of doing that. With that. That's the visionary that we're trying to do. So it's not so much about we have to have a black person on the £50 note because we're here. We're changing the narrative of Britain and challenging one of the oldest institutions in Britain to change uh, its mindset and its narrative of how they see us. I mean, OK, there's lots of there's other major structural things we need to fight. Of course we do. I mean, I, I got a message from... Uh, a well-known black historian and academic said, you know, said, Patrick, contact me when this is all over. Let's, for, let's do the real work. I'm doing, I'm doing, the, re- I'm doing the real work. The, the real work comes in different shapes and sizes. Yes. I mean, I've been involved in some heavy stuff, but this is also heavy, but it's different. It's about changing the culture and the mindset. Again, going back to my show, in 400, in 400 years' time, we should be in a situation whereby we don't need to have a back note in the first place. It's, you know, because right, we've gone yeah. beyond that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, we only have a few minutes left, yeah. and I ask all my guests the same question. What do you hope for? I hope for um, peace, tranquility, and, and a sense of one's, one, oneness, basically, because I think not just simply as, bl- as, as people of colour, 
but as a as a as a human race because we are dying. The planet is decaying, it's mm. dying. And to me that is a real issue. And if that if the planet is decaying and dying, people like black people, people of colour, we're gonna we're gonna suffer big time. So if you just look at the impact of climate change, um, again, uh, I, in one of my shows, a museum of grooves, I was interviewing a, a, um, a writer. He's written a book about the Caribbean. He travelled about, he travelled around to about twenty-five Caribbean islands, and he's written this book. Um, Jericho Joshua, um, his name, um, and the book's called Island People. So I said to him, "Fantastic, you've done these tra- fantastic travels." So let me ask a question: In about fifty or hundred years' time, do you think do you think half these Caribbean islands will exist? Because of climate change, it'll probably be all submerged down in the Caribbean Sea or the Atlantic. And that's what's happening. What's going to happen in the next 100, 200 years' time? And this is where the issue of the whole stuff around immigration is important. You, there's some, there'll be certain parts of Africa, certain parts of India, um, where, uh, and, and various Pacific islands, they won't exist. Half those places, those countries will not exist anymore because of climate change. And what's going to happen then? Where, where will people live? Are they going to simply die in the sea, or are they, are they going to come to mainland Europe if they're allowed to come in? Right. So this raises big issues, basically. And so I think we peace, tranquility, openness is important, not just f- for us to get our act together within the community in Britain, but for the, for the world to get its act together. Patrick, thank you so much for being here. Be seen being black. Yes. I love that. (laughs) An activist, historian, former politician, and cultural curator, Patrick Vernon is one of the black Britons who has been instrumental in uncovering a black British identity. From fighting against systemic and societal inequalities to his Afrofuturistic exploration aboard the SS Sankofa on his podcast, Museum of Grooves, Patrick's continuing impact is felt wide and far. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City, for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. I'm Anushka Astana and this is Today in Focus. We're bringing you general election coverage every day from Hartlepool. I mean, the government talk about left behind towns and left behind places and actually that presupposes they were ever at the same starting point. To Belfast. I'm old enough to remember getting on the bus and them coming on with sniffer dogs to find out if there were bombs under the seats. We're talking to people and not just politicians to really get to the heart of this election. Subscribe now wherever you download your podcasts. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. 
serving collectors since 1945. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.